Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Aileen Lee, founder and managing partner at Cowboy Ventures. She also is a founding member of All Rays, a nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing the representation of women in the venture-backed ecosystem. Here's Aileen. Thank you so much. I'm gonna just tell you a little bit about me and then I'm gonna actually open it up to questions in the beginning. I'd love to make sure this is your time, your hour, uh, that we spend the time talking about stuff that you wanna hear about. So uh, I'll just give you a little background so maybe you have a better idea of where I come from and stuff that we might be able to talk about. Uh, so I'm a first generation immigrant from, my parents were both born in China and uh, they came here separately uh, and through different journeys and went through Ellis Island and uh, one settled in Iowa and one settled in New York and then they met here in the United States. And, um, and so the immigrant story is a big part of my upbringing. My grandparents had a Chinese restaurant in Yonkers, New York and everyone in the family used to help out and work there. So kind of that work ethic and also understanding everything that my grandparents and my parents went through to make it so that I could be standing here uh, in front of you is uh, just really important part of my, my, I think my work ethic and my values. Um, that, uh, <laughs> that lady, I couldn't find a picture of myself with what I was brought, I was born in Staten Island, New York and then I moved to New Jersey, and I could not find a picture of what my hair looked like back then, but it's, that's like a close approximation to what my hair, hair looked like back then. Um, and uh, I was fortunate to go to MIT, as Tom mentioned, uh, and part of the reason why was I read an article, I think in Time or Newsweek back, this is in the late 80s, about what they were calling at the time scientific illiteracy, which was really about um, high school kids studying STEM fields and showing a predilection or a discomfort with STEM fields. And in particular, while girls were test and girls and boys were testing equally through, uh, through elementary school and junior high school, at high school, it was turning out that a lot of girls were dropping out of math and science and were not pursuing careers or majors in college in math and science. It was creating this, this um, scientific literacy gap or a gender gap in STEM. And when I read that, and this is like, I couldn't even find something. I'd have to go find microfiche to find articles from 1988. But um, I mean, sadly, it still exists, right? That's an article from, um, nine, from 2017, but that really made me mad. And it made me frustrated because it just didn't seem right that girls should not be pursuing important careers that were quantitative in math and science. And so I decided to fly to MIT. I know that's not actually like the normal path. Um, and I was woefully underprepared. Uh, and so it really kicked my butt for four years. But I was, I'm very grateful that they let me in and that I got to graduate and I got to meet some fantastic people. Um, and it turned out that MIT helped me prepare for my future career because it turns out that my my professional calling is actually working with very smart technical founders and being a great business partner to them and helping them kind of translate their technical ideas into business. Um, so after that I went to, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated from undergrad, so I got a job as a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley um, in New York City. I was in the M&A department, which was probably one of the more quantitative analyst jobs. It was really fun, really challenging. Um, and But I felt like, uh, I probably would apply to business school, but maybe for a third year before business school, I would try and do something different. So I actually went to, that's a picture of um, Fudan University, what it used to look like in the 80s and 90s. It doesn't exactly look like that anymore. But I went there to, uh, at the time, Shanghai was going to be the next New York. And it was really, China was really an emerging economy. And Shanghai was like just actually a much, a fraction of the size that it is today. 
Um, and I thought maybe my career would be being one of those people who could speak Chinese and go back and forth and do business in Asia and on the West Coast. So I went to go brush up on my Chinese. I studied Chinese in the mornings and I taught English in the afternoons. Uh, and then I had like, I had a sweater, a backpack and a bicycle and that was pretty much it. And it was probably one of the best years of my life. Um, when I was there, I borrowed a friend's typewriter and I uh, wrote my business school applications. Has anyone here used a typewriter? <laughs> okay, yes, good, like 15 people. Um, and I was fortunate to get into business school, so that's why I went to business school. Uh, and when I was at business school, I always had, I had grown up working at the Short Hills Mall in Short Hills, New Jersey, in different retail jobs, and I always had a real interest in both retail and consumer products and consumer brands, in particular brands that created a lot of customer love. Uh, and so I, I did internships at the North Face and Odwalla that were both kind of high growth private startups at the time when I was in business school. And then I went to go work for um, a company called Gap. Um, and I don't know if you, any of you, is anyone here remember a time when everyone used to wear khakis? <laughs> like I know for a lot of young people, you'd be like, what? But this is basically Gap at the time. Like this was the uniform that everyone wore and we were probably like the hottest company in retail. And that's from one of our ads. It was really a fun time to work at Gap. It was like a talent magnet company where some of the best and brightest people in marketing and merchandising and planning and supply chain worked. Um, and I learned a ton. Um, and along the way, I had always heard of, I had heard of venture capital when I was at Morgan Stanley and it seemed like such a dream job, getting to work with founders, hearing their ideas, trying to decide which people to do business with and to back, and then helping them build their companies. But at the time, when I was an analyst at Morgan Stanley, my understanding was venture capital was all dudes. Uh, and it would probably not be an environment that I would fit in or I'd feel comfortable or that they would really want me. So I never even interviewed for a job out of Morgan Stanley. Um, and I was really fortunate that I got a call from a recruiter who was looking for an associate at Kleiner Perkins. And I said, you know, it sounds like a really interesting job. I actually feel like I would love it, but I just don't know if I'm comfortable going to being the only woman at a firm. Like most of these firms are all men. And, and the recruiter was a woman. Uh, and she said, Aileen, if every woman I call says that, we will never get women to work in venture capital. That really worked on me. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and so I went in for the interview. And fortunately, I actually didn't know very much about venture capital. So I wasn't actually super intimidated by the people. Um, and I later, kind of as I did my research, I realized like interviewing with John Doerr or Vinod Kosa or some of these people was kind of like a big deal. Uh, and I was really fortunate I got the job. And so uh, that's where I worked for 12 years, where uh, we did, you know, at the time we were, we were the first investors in Amazon and in Google and in Genentech and uh, Netscape and a bunch of really interesting kind of game-changing companies and those are the kinds of people who would kind of walk through our halls during the day um, and I got to work with incredible people and learned a lot um, along the way I felt like I didn't have enough operating experience to really become a great like kind of partner to founders so we had invested in a company called Denu um, that was founded actually by two Stanford grabs and uh, and it wasn't going the way that we hoped and they asked me to step in as founding CEO or maybe CEO for this summer like in retrospect, that was a very naive thought. Like it's really not possible to be CEO for the summer. <laughs> um, and so I went and I did that job for two years. Um, Kleiner was an investor. We raised a Series B, and you know, so we had a great, uh, like a great year. And then the recession hit in 2008, and we had a really tough year, and we had to lay off half the company. And then we wound up acquiring two of our closest competitors, and then I replaced myself. Uh, so I did that job for two years while I was kind of going back and forth with um, between Denu and Kleiner. And, it was a really great experience. I'm grateful to have had like that time, both through good times and really tough times running a venture-backed startup. Uh, and then in 2012, as Tom mentioned, I started Cowboy Ventures. And I had been doing series A and B and doing mostly consumer investing, but some enterprise software, some media, some green tech um, at Kleiner. 
and I decided to move earlier to seed, which was a new category that was really, had been in place for a couple of years, but it really wasn't a very established institutional venture category, but it's also more collaborative. You're starting earlier, you're investing less, so we, and versus writing, you know, investing four or eight million dollars in a company at seed. At the time, you're investing five hundred thousand, seven hundred fifty thousand, a million dollars in companies when they're really just getting started, and then they graduate from us to a Series A or Series Series B firm. And that's what I've been doing for um, the past seven years. It's been a really fun kind of entrepreneurial journey. To also, you can see our logo. We have a bunch of different logos. We have a zebra, we have a quail, we have a koi fish, we have an elephant. Um, and so it's, uh, our logo is all about, we picked um, culturally significant, like, like good luck animals in different cultures. And then we have an androgynous cow person that's <laughs> riding with the, uh, like the magical animal, kind of to, I think, send the message that I think we're, we, we try to be like a little bit different. We're a little non-traditional and what we do at Cowboy Ventures is pretty personal. Uh, and so it's really been uh, fun to be able to start that. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to all of you. I'd love to make sure that we spend the rest of the time that you have together talking about stuff that you want to hear about. So raise your hand. I'd love if you would say your name and either ask a question or something that you'd love to hear about. And yes, sir. I would like to hear about the challenges which you faced when you started doing your ventures. OK. Challenges along the journey. We have a cowboy t-shirt for you if you'd like one. There you go. You can just throw it at him. OK. Who else has a question? <laughs> yes, in the back. Hi, I'm curious about what some of the challenges were that you faced when you switched from an investor role to an operator and then back. OK. Okay. Yes. I'm curious about your observations that you've seen in companies and teams that have been able to build that customer love that you've talked about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who wants to know about customer love? Okay. Yes, over there. Okay. Uh, basically, I want to know how do you decide to select the startup you work with? How do we decide on startups to work with? Okay. Um, like investment decisions? All right, how about in the back? Over back there, yeah, go ahead. I was wondering if you could tell me more about like how you started the venture capitalist firm. How I started Cowboy? Uh, the, yeah, Cowboy. Okay, yeah. starting Cowboy, okay. Uh, let's see, uh, starting Cowboy. Okay, how about over there, maybe in the red shirt? Um, I was wondering if you had to pick like one point that was your pivot point, like turning point of your career, what would it be? Hmm. <coughs> All right, one turning point. Sorry if you can't read my writing. I will re, like, rebunch the questions. My mom said I should have been a doctor, like when you're handwriting so illegible. Uh, right here in the red, yeah. Um, I want to know more about always. Thank you for asking that question. Okay, always. So I work at an early stage startup, and it seems like with diversity efforts, we can only really get people to think sort of one axis of, axis of diversity at a time. 
in your sort of interest in getting more diversity, how do we push it so that people think of it as a more cohesive, yeah, along age, you know, gender, educational background, all those things? Okay, different kinds of diversity and how we get people to really em embrace it. Uh, in over there. And I'm curious about your writing process when you do the articles. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, writing art. Okay. okay. You mentioned that uh, you had no experience with venture capital coming in. So how did you uh, like accumulate that experience? Right. Okay. So that kind of goes a little bit with the challenge and the journey, like getting VC like mindset. Okay. Um, let's see how many. Well, this, I love that you guys have so many questions. So awesome. Um, how about over there in the black? My question is, what I guess your best advice to kind of develop those soft skills, and like, how do you also like, I guess, motivate your team members to kind of like work along with you all? Yep. Yeah. Developing soft skills and communication skills. Okay. Right, let's just do one more, and then hopefully we'll have some time at the end to do questions as well. Okay. I was wondering if you could talk about what are some specific investment theses you have right now. I know you invest mm -hmm. in consumer, but anything specifically you're very excited about. <coughs> and then maybe if you could also add, um, what in your view do you think makes you a, a very unique investor? Um, I know you once at a conference mentioned like, some people saying, okay, well that's just a good guy. Let's include him in the round because he's a good guy. And what would you what would you think people say about you? <coughs> okay. Oh, that's a hard one. I might have to ask my team members who are here, Amanda and Jemira, to answer that. But it's a really hard one. Um, what? Make, why should I take your money? <laughs> okay. And then you want to just like you can just throw out the rest of the t-shirts if you guys want to. Get, get. Anyone who wants to raise your hand if you want a t-shirt? <laughs> Yay! I'm glad you like them. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Okay, I'm gonna. Okay, <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna bucket these, kind of like, maybe like VC career, and then maybe starting cowboy, and then oh, it's kind of in here is like writing and thinking and skill development. And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about all raise. I'll try and bucket all of the things that you asked about in these different categories. So, um, and uh, so, you know, my first job at Kleiner Perkins. Was, so when I, I worked at Gap after business school, and I did a couple of different jobs, and I really, um, I guess, a couple of things, especially if you're in college and you haven't decided where you're, if you're an undergrad or grad student, and you haven't decided where you're going to work at, or you haven't started your job search. Like at business school. Um, some of the companies, uh, they started recruiting in the fall. So by Christmas or by the New Year's, a lot of my friends had jobs, and they had very high-paying jobs. And I knew I wanted to work for a consumer company or maybe a startup or something like that. And, so, and at the time, most of those companies did not recruit at business school. So I basically, every lunch break, I would go back to my dorm room, and I would like basically 
I had looked up things at the library because there wasn't really an internet yet, but <laughs> and I would call companies and I would just ask to talk to the vice president of marketing or the director of marketing or the director of product management or the director of supply chain. And I would just basically, if I could catch someone on the phone, I would ask them if they had any jobs. Um, I really pounded the pavement for months and months. And I found this lady named Busy Burr who was a GSB grad working at Gap in strategy. And she took a chance on me and she gave me a job even though she didn't really have an open rack. And I joined her in this small <laughs> consulting group working for the president of Gap trying to help figure out how we were gonna grow the top line. And so sometimes that was a supply chain project, sometimes it was a pricing project, sometimes it was a store assortment project. But I just did kind of like an internal consulting job. And I just, I loved the chance to learn and Busy was really smart. So you've probably heard the advice like pick your boss. I basically, I loved the company and I really loved the person I was gonna be working for. And so I, I took the job, even though the pay was so much less than a lot of other jobs that I was offered or that my friends were getting. So I just figured like, and I, to be honest, my, um, my family had like a little bit of an intervention with me because they were like, hey, you, like we didn't spend all this money to help you go to these schools so that you could go work at the Gap. <laughs> like, and you know, retail is really not where we envisioned that this would be ending up. And uh, I just had a feeling like it was a time to do something that I would be really passionate about rather than trying to do something that people would like think was a good job or admired. And I think after college, you, there's no longer a ladder, right? And there's no longer a path. So you really have to figure out what you're going to be passionate about and ideally put yourself in a situation where you're going to be with a lot of smart people and you'll have the chance to learn. Um, and because I, I was in that situation, I did a good job. And so in my second year, um, the, the, the CEO of Gap at the time was a guy named Mickey Drexler, who's probably one of the greatest living merchants in America or in the world. Um, he, he, after Gap, he did J. Crew. He's just an incredible uh, retail leader and merchant. And he had this like internal star search to pick, uh, he had decided he was going to take on a chief of staff every year. And uh, I wound up being a finalist. And uh, we, he basically put like maybe eight or 10 of the finalists at a lunch table together. And he basically would just sit, like he sat there and he just peppered us all with questions. It was such an odd <laughs> process, but he really wanted to know where, like where you came from and what you cared about and what your values were and what motivated you. And I talked a little bit about my family and I talked a little bit about working in retail and I talked a, lot, a little bit about caring a lot about customers. And I don't really know what it was, but I got the job. So I wound up being chief of staff to the CEO of a public company um, when I was just a year out of business school. And I just worked my tail off. I was there two hours before he showed up every day. I was there for two or four hours after he left every day. And it was like ridiculous multitasking. Because on the one hand, it's a public company and you're supporting the CEO who's got shareholders and real estate and debt and financials and analyst reports and store reports and international and Gap and ba Gap, Baby Gap and Banana Republic and all these different things. And also there's, and we care a lot about customers. Like we would read customer complaints. We would read letters and write them back. And like, so kind of from the high to the low, it was just, it was an amazing. Uh, and then also sometimes people would like, you know, some famous actor or journalist would walk in and Mickey would say, um, what's happening, Dennis Hopper or whatever. And uh, Dennis Hopper would be like, dude, Stockholm is so cool right now. And then he would just look at me and then he'd be like, make it happen. And then like basically 48 hours later, I would, be, I would be on the phone calling all of Mickey's friends being like, what are the cool stores we should visit? What are the right hotels? What are the restaurants? What are the cool trends? What street should we go to to see people wearing streetwear? And then like three, three days later, we would have this junket of Gap people going to Sweden or like going to Stockholm to check out like the fashion and the style and the culture and like putting together like two dream days. Like it was just like every day your schedule would get totally blown up and you'd be doing crazy things. Um, and after that job, um, I got 
to kind of pick where I went in the organization, and I picked the internet job. Uh, the internet business was the thing that was kind of, I thought, the most exciting, uh, Gap.com, and it was a tiny team, and so we were just really trying to, it was like a startup inside of a big company, um, and uh, we just had to learn about, like, what, what do you do to run a site every day? Like, do you change the homepage every day, or do you keep it the same? Like, do you send emails, do you not send emails? Like, just so many, what do you do with customer data? Like, so many things that there are no rules back then, and we just were trying to figure it out. Um, and so, I guess the... That all those things prepared me for going into venture capital in a way because I got exposed to a lot of different functions. I did inside the same company change jobs pretty much every year, um, and uh, and the chief of staff job actually helped me because I effectively went to Kleiner as a chief of staff, um, as the uh, one of the associates working for John Doerr, and just John had such a full plate and so many different portfolio companies and so many people wanted to meet with him and it was really important for us to make sure we always showed entrepreneurs like the utmost courtesy and professionalism and attentiveness and then also he had a lot of um, kind of um, political or kind of um, civic cause things that he was passionate about like public education and improving California schools things like that and so I just was constantly thinking about what is important to John and what are his priorities, and also what are the priorities of the firm. And I just tried to apply myself to whatever things needed to be done so that we could accomplish our goals as a team. Um, and I think that mentality, I mean, it's something that we talk about at Cowboy Ventures, um, that has served me incredibly well in my career so that whenever I got placed into a situation where I didn't really know a lot, um, you know, I'm trying to learn and I'm asking questions so I can make the team achieve its goal, help the team achieve its goals. Uh, and so it has basically lots of people were helpful to me to help me figure out the things that I don't know. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think about, so the VC mindset was, in my opinion, VC was an apprenticeship business. So I didn't jump in and say, oh yeah, I'm ready to be a VC. I kind of, I took the job and I was like, I'm ready to learn and serve. And that's basically what I did for five or six years, working for different partners, first John and then different partners at Kleiner Perkins, and trying to understand how they work with their portfolio companies, how they help founders navigate problems, uh, how they help them raise money or introduce them to customers or work on marketing programs or those kinds of things. And so I kind of learned through apprenticeship by going to lots of, uh, lots of meetings and spending a lot of time with founders, interviewing candidates, trying to understand like if a candidate didn't work out, why? If we were part of the interview process, what should we have asked differently so that we could have figured that out? So I just did that for many, many years and that was what kind of helped me develop my mindset as an investor. Also getting to see what happens to the company. So you have a thesis, you write a memo, you do your diligence, you make the investment, you work with the founders for a number of years and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. And so trying to basically piece together some heuristics about um, like what do they have in common or what are the signals that you can tell you're at a fork in the road and that you need to help the founders understand that they're at an important fork in the road and that the decisions that they're gonna make could basically send their company in this direction or in this direction. Um, along the way, I did start writing a little bit. Uh, the, uh, one of the first things I wrote was, I think a blog post on TechCrunch called Why Women Rule the Internet. Uh, and it was just about how I think women are the un unsung heroes of a lot of companies where they're the majority customers for most internet companies, most e-commerce companies, whether it's travel, whether it's social media, um, even whether it's casual gaming. But most of the companies were founded by men and most of the companies didn't have a lot of women working at the companies. And it was the idea that I think we, we had an opportunity to both 
embed more of the customer into these companies because companies might inadvertently be making decisions that actually the customer can't relate to because it's a bunch of guys sitting around a table trying to guess um, like how the customer who's generally often a woman would use the product. Um, and uh, I, it was hard for me to write. I was, I'm like a very slow writer and I'm a nervous writer. So I write and then I leave it and then I wonder like, is that dumb? Is anyone gonna think it's dumb? <laughs> and then I go back to it a couple days later or maybe a week later and I like work on it a little bit. And then, so unlike some uh, investors or you know, obviously journalists who can kind of like just come out with stuff every day or every couple days, I, I def I'm definitely more of a once a quarter, a couple times a year uh, writer. But um, I, I try to write things that are both in my head, but also maybe a point of view that I feel like hasn't been expressed or like an insight that, um, that hasn't been shared yet. So over, uh, over the weekend, I posted something called Nobody is Batting a Thousand. I don't know if anyone has seen that <laughs> or not. Um, but it's basically this idea that maybe at a place like Stanford uh, or in the startup ecosystem, you hear things like, oh, they're crushing it or they're killing it or, oh my God, we were super oversubscribed. And like, it can make you feel bad about yourself. Right or like I got ten offers or you know like oh my God you know how much he's making or she's making and it can make you feel insecure or like you have imposter syndrome and uh, one of our daughters plays softball and sometimes she has a really good she's a good hitter but sometimes she doesn't hit the way she wants to um, and like once you've hit a home run or you've hit a triple if you don't hit a home run or a triple in the next game you feel bad like you feel like you're a bad player and I've seen players decide that like think about quitting because they couldn't keep up with the thing that they have in their head about like how they should be hitting um, and the thing I my daughter and I talk about is batting average right like does anyone here know what the best batting average in history is in baseball or softball <coughs> what is it yeah it's, it's basically around like batting average is like every when you're at the plate and you get at, like the ball in a game gets pitched to you what percent of the time do you actually hit um, the ball to get into play. So you get on base, either first, second, third, or home. Um, basically in baseball, the most that the best baseball player has ever done is 30% of the time get, get on base, right? So 70% of the time, the best players in history have not gotten on base. And so it's the idea that not to get sucked into this feeling like everyone is crushing it, and that if you're swinging and you keep playing and you're being thoughtful about your swing and your preparation and you're doing the work, you just gotta stay in the game. Um, and you got to keep swinging, and don't ever think that everyone's batting a thousand because they're not. Um, how are we doing on time? We're okay. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'll move to starting Cowboy Ventures. So um, in 2012, I started a seed fund called Cowboy Ventures. Um, Kleiner Perkins had grown pretty big over the years uh, that I had been there, the 12 years, and. Um, we had different practices, and, it, and I was a senior partner at the firm, so all of the senior partners were getting pulled into a lot of internal meetings just to try and make sure that we were making good decisions for the venture practice, for the growth practice, for the green tech practice, for the, the life sciences practice, for China, for things we were doing in India a lot. And, then, and the venture environment was changing where this new category of seed was, was starting. And, so a few of us at Kleiner were advocating that we should be doing some seeds, but you know, we had a very big fund, we had a very big team. It's kind of, sometimes it's hard to justify making small investments when you're at a big fund. And uh, so I, my husband and I were at dinner with a couple that are both entrepreneurs. And uh, one of them knew Kleiner very well, and she asked me how, uh, how things were going. And I was like, well, you know, it's, 
sometimes it's hard to navigate. We've gotten bigger. And she and he both said, when are you going to leave and start your own firm? Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, even though I had been working with founders for 20 years and working with entrepreneurs for 20 years, it had not crossed my mind to start my own firm. And I think some of it was like, really? You guys think I could start my own firm? Uh, and, uh, and they were like, yes, we definitely think you could start your own firm. And I, I think this is actually apparently very consistent with research on gender differences, that a lot of times like, women have to be like, told that they should run for office. Like men, you know, if someone's running for office, it's like, oh, yeah, where do I sign up? Right? But a lot of women, the studies show, have to be told you should do this. And they do a great job when they do it. But, um, and I'm sure a lot of it is because of how we're brought up and, and what, how society does treat different genders differently as they're growing up. And so, uh, so I went back home and I talked to my husband and I was like, do you really think I could do that? And he said, yes, you should totally, you should think about it. You should try it. And so I spent three months working on basically a, a deck describing what we would do at Cowboy Ventures and how we might be different. Um, and the things that I wrote about how uh, we would be different, well, one is I actually am a woman. <laughs> and that's just different in venture capital, <laughs> sadly. Um, by definition, then you are definitely like, you know, you bring a different perspective to the table. Um, that uh, I had operating experience both as a venture-backed founder and also in kind of in corporate America. Um, I also have a, like some marketing and consumer experience, which is also a little bit different. Um, and that I think over the years, because I had been in venture and as a Series A and Series B investor for, so for 12 years before starting Cowboy, I've just gotten to know a ton of people in the venture ecosystem. And I've also helped and worked with a lot of companies that have scaled past seed. And so the ability to actually work with seed companies and be able to work with the founders and explain to them, how is a Series A uh, investor going to think about this company? How is a Series B investor going to think about this company? How is a Series C investor going to think about this company? And being able to coach the founders, both for sc helping scale themselves and their teams, um, but also making sure that they can survive and don't run out of money is pretty unique, because there are not a lot of people who have been traditional venture investors who moved into seed. Um, I think like personality-wise, at um, at Cowboy Ventures, we're a small shop. We're not like a giant uh, firm with lots of people. Two of my awesome colleagues, Amanda and Jemaira, are here uh, today. And then uh, my partner, Ted, is not here today. But we're, we're a small shop. So when you work with Cowboy Ventures, you really just get us. So it's really about personal relationships and personal chemistry and that we, um, we are risk takers. And we, half the time when we make a seed investment, there is no product. It's a founder with ideas, maybe slides. Uh, but they haven't shipped it. They need the money to actually build it. And so that takes a considerable amount of like, gut and taking a leap on people. Um, and I think that's like, pretty unique versus like, being very metrics driven and making sure that like, every, all the numbers pencil out during an investment. Um, OK, I do actually have some other slides. Um, so I'm going to quickly talk about finding your inner dolphin, um, which is the title of this talk. So. Um, there were times, and actually, I think someone asked about the turning point in your career. So uh, there were times when I felt like I would not stay in venture. Um, and I was fortunate to uh, do a program at the Aspen Institute called the Crown Fellows Program, where you get put with 20 other people, and you get to read cool stuff like Maya Angelou and MLK, and, other, and then you talk about them and how it impacts your thinking about your life and how your impact on society. and. Uh, you do this check-in process where you t everyone goes around the circle and talks about how they're doing. And so it's a safe space where you really get to know the people and you get to trust the people. And I was, to be honest, younger and less experienced than a lot of the people in the room. I always felt like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. These people are so amazing. And I 
checked in and I said, you know, sometimes I don't know if I fit in in venture capital because I, I feel like I swim with a lot of sharks and uh, I feel like a guppy. And I cried and I just said, like, I really love this job, but I just don't know if I'm cut out for it. And my classmates, they listened, they made me feel safe, and they said, you have to come up with a different visualization for how you're feeling. Like, you may be swimming with sharks, but you are not a shark and you're never gonna be a shark. But you ha cannot think of yourself as a guppy because that's not going to help. <laughs> um, maybe think of yourself as a dolphin. Like, a do dolphins are smart um, and uh, they swim in pods and uh, they swim with the sharks. And they have every right to be in the ocean, um, but, and they just swim differently. And you have to just think of yourself as a dolphin, not a guppy. <laughs> um, and that was really helpful for me, uh, because I, for, something, for some reason, it helped me visualize the, like, the idea that I could stay in venture, and I didn't have to be a vest-wearing bro <laughs> to keep doing my job, um, that I could just be myself and be comfortable with it. And uh, I don't know if that resonates with anyone here. If you, either in the past or in the future, you may find yourself in a situation where you're really wondering, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? And I think having the chance to actually reflect on kind of who you are and whether you can like, be yourself and in the environment, I think is, I'm really grateful for, uh, for that feedback that I got. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about uh, following your gut, which I think hopefully speaks a little bit to starting cowboy, all raise, uh, VC judgment. Um, so I talked a little bit about starting cowboy, and uh, I, I guess in retrospect that was a leap uh, to leave. I was very safe and um, well compensated at my former employer, and so taking a leap to start Cowboy Ventures, it just felt like if I wasn't going to start something that was smaller and more personal, uh, at that time, I would never do it. Uh, and so I, I, I took the leap to do that. Um, the same thing about writing the unicorn piece. So when I, after I had started Cowboy, I had a $40 million fund and no investments. And uh, I was talking, I wanted to try and make the best investments possible out of the fund that I had raised. And I went and talked to lots of smart investors, many of whom have speak, spoken in this room, and smart LPs, the investors in our funds, about like, you know, tell me about some of the best funds in history. What were the companies, was it one company or three companies or five companies in the fund that made the breakout? And what did those companies have in common? Uh, and everything was anecdotal and there was surprisingly no data. Um, back then in 2012 and 2013, there was no pitch book, there was no crunch base, there was no CB insights, there was no the information. Um, and so there was like, you know, billions of dollars invested by VC firms every year and no analysis. And so I started basically making a spreadsheet and I started making a list of companies that were less than 10 years old that had been, become worth more than a billion dollars, either in the public or private markets, and just collecting basically information about how many founders were there. When were the founders born, and how old were they when they founded the company? Where did they go to college? What did they do before school, uh, before starting the company? Where did they work? How did they know each other? What was the original idea? Um, how much money did they raise? All these different things. And so I basically created a data set of 39 companies that had been born within the past 10 years that were worth over a billion dollars. And they actually had quite a few things in common. Um, one of the things at the time was, when I was taking pitch meetings from founders, uh, 
sometimes founders would walk in the door and they'd be like, hey, so we started this company and I know like I'm really old to have started this company because I'm 35, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I didn't want those people to, when you did look at the analysis, the companies in the unicorn data set were founded by people in their 30s and 40s. They were not founded by 20 year old dropouts from Harvard. But at the time there was like this feeling among the entrepreneurial community that if you haven't started your company by the time you like, by the time you finished college, you're not going to make it. And uh, the other thing was teams, that co-founding teams generally like, were the, the vast majority of the data set because it's hard to be a solo founder. Um, and so I think there were, there were a bunch of insights that I found from the data set that I basically wrote up in this blog post called uh, Welcome to the Unicorn Club. And uh, the unicorn word was one that I, I didn't have that until the end. So I basically had this very long phrase that was, um, billion dollar companies founded in the last 10 years that were like that were either public or private and venture backed and you can't really write that many times in an essay it's not very readable um, and so I had like I did this find and replace and I was like I was substituting like monster hit or like Godzilla or like <laughs> um, home run and I would reread the piece with the different phrases and then I put in unicorn because I wanted something that was like more fun and more mystical and made it seem more magical and more elusive and like and you know more special, not kind of like business analysis, analysis -y. and uh, and unicorn just made the whole thing much easier to read, and so that's what I uh, that's what I posted, and so that's kind of and I, I honestly did not expect anyone to read it, uh, so it's it's quite <coughs> overwhelming that it's still a thing actually, um, and I guess the last thing I'll talk about is all raise so. Um, we talked about it uh, a little bit, you know, my 20 years in venture capital, for the most of it, until probably the last two or three years, I have generally been the only woman in the room all the time. Um, and also, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not really a person of color by, in terms of underrepresented minorities in tech or uh, in venture, but generally also the only non-white person in the room, often, oftentimes. And um, tech is just such an incredible, entrepreneurship and venture capital and tech are such an incredible engine of innovation and growth and job creation and economic power um, that it just seems so crazy to me. And also, we've also put ourselves on this, this meritocracy pedestal, which we have not been. Uh, and so it just seems crazy to me that we are not giving, we're not recognizing the inherent bias in our system and that we're not trying to figure out how to change it so that we create more opportunity for people from different backgrounds in the venture ecosystem. Um, and in 2017, um, you know, the news about binary capital came out and different CEOs um, behaving very badly. So there was just, an, and Susan Fowler wrote her awesome blog post, and there was just enough evidence that you could no longer think that we did not have a problem in tech. Uh, and so I, I drafted uh, an email to some women friends in venture capital, uh, and I let it sit in my draft folder for probably two months. Should I stick my neck out and try and get people together and trying to figure out what we can do to, text, to fix this solution or should I just try and make Cowboy Ventures be successful? Because by making Cowboy Ventures successful, I will be showing the world that being a, like hopefully a like more human person and being a little bit different and practicing a personal, more maybe very honest, straightforward style of venture capital, if we can make a lot of money and deliver fantastic returns, uh, that will hopefully make a difference. Um, in how founders get treated when they work with us and a bunch of other things. Um, but I wound up pushing send in the summer of 2017 saying, hey, I'm guessing a lot of us are feeling the same thing. 
where basically the lack of women and other folks in the venture ecosystem is just not okay, and we have a window to do something about it. Um, do you want to get together and talk about things that we could do together to make it better? And bless their hearts, basically the women on that email thread generally all responded within an hour or two. And they were like, I'm in. Like my friend Jess Lee at Sequoia was like, I'm in. What do I need to do? I'll be your flacky and like order lunch. You know, like, you know, the first female partner at Sequoia was like, I will do anything. I'm in. And uh, so we got together. We had a Google Doc beforehand where we all basically wrote kind of what are systemic issues and what are, what are root causes and what are symptoms and what are things that we could actually do together. We had probably 15 pages of, of basically notes with each other before we got together for dinner. We had a three-hour dinner and brainstormed, okay, if we were all going to get together and do something to try and change the trajectory, which is basically just there's no trajectory and no momentum of change in venture capital, how would we do it? And we didn't realize it at the time, but we were starting all race. Uh, and it has been, uh, I mean, Starting Cowboy and starting helping start All Rays as a collection of people has been one of the highlights of my personal and professional career, working side by side with these women and now men to try and make uh, the venture capital ecosystem more equitable um, for more kinds of people. It's just there's so many people who care about this and want to make it better, and teaming up to actually try and do things and help others is, has just been awesome. Um, so I will. Uh, I will close and then maybe we have a couple minutes for questions on, um, I'm very fortunate to be here, thank you for having me. A lot of people took chances on me along the way. You know, MIT like, changed my life by letting me in. Um, same thing with business school. Busy Burr at Gap gave me my first job. Mickey and John Doerr gave me jobs. Um, the women who I emailed about the, um, the conversation wrote me back. Uh, so many people have done big things and small things for me to enable me to be here today with you. Um, I just feel incredibly grateful and also incredibly motivated to try and make things better for others. Um, I have a lot of privilege, and I hope to use it uh, to its best positive impact. But everyone in this room has a lot of privilege as well. And uh, by being a Stanford student or being by a member of this community, uh, by you know, where you decide to go work and lend your talents, by um, when you become, if you are a hiring manager or a team member, how you treat others. Um, there are lots of, like, you know, how you treat people that you pass on the street or just met, like from high to low, there's lots of ways in which we have privilege that we can use it for good. And so if you get anything from this talk, I hope you will walk out thinking a little bit about your privilege and how you are going to use it wisely. Thanks for having me. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.